and welcome to Evaluand, a podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. On this week's episode of Evaluand, I am chatting with Gregory Greenman II about his dissertation on Carol Weiss. I'm really excited to talk about this for a number of reasons. First, Carol Weiss is amazing. Uh, she, her second edition of her evaluation textbook was actually the textbook for our evaluation class, um, which is hard because it's not in public, like in print anymore, but it was such a good book. Like it really epitomizes my approach to evaluation, which I think makes sense given that's how I was kind of trained to do evaluation. But I just, I really like her approach and thoughts about evaluation. And the second reason I'm excited for this episode is because I actually had the pleasure of going to Gregory's dissertation defense. And this is weird, sort of weird, because uh, most of the time dissertation defenses aren't public events, right? And I didn't go to Western Michigan either. So like just a lot of reasons why I wouldn't normally have ever been able to attend anybody else's dissertation events. But one of the fun little uh, sort of fun, you know, fun in quotations, uh, th- things about the pandemic is that dissertation defenses are open now and I get to go see all my friends and colleagues dissertation defense and this one was a really fun one so I'm very excited to chat with Gregory about it all. So to get started, Gregory, if you want to introduce yourself to our listeners. Certainly. As you said, I got my recently got my doctorate in interdisciplinary evaluation from Western Michigan University's program. Before that, I got my master's in public administration and nonprofit management and economics, uh, which is a weird combination but exciting. Uh, from Roosevelt University in Chicago. Well, I was there, I actually, that's how I got exposed to evaluation. And I'll talk about that um, in a little bit when we talk about Carol Weiss. Right now I'm doing some consulting work with a couple large international and national organizations. And I think an important thing to know about me is that I'm my research and my studies in evaluation tend to focus on the ways that information, so evaluation results or research or evidence or knowledge influences decision-making. Uh, particularly in social policy. And I think that's a realm where Carol Weiss really shined her most. Yeah, definitely. I, at least looking at the research use and influence literature, that was part of my dissertation study as well. Her name gets brought up in a lot of different other fields. Like her research is very, very important to the idea of research use and how it's been studied since then. So I'm really excited to talk about this. So to, to get us started with all this, who is Carol Weiss and why did you decide to study her for your dissertation? The way that I got into this topic is kind of exciting. Western Michigan University, through an odd series of events, ended up getting Carol Weiss's office, all of the stuff in her, not not the chairs and stuff, obviously, but all of her materials in her office sent to us after her passing in 2013. So we have everything that was in, that she was finishing up working on. Um, she did finish everything. Uh, so there's no new little exciting bits of information in there like I'd hoped. But I do have a lot of drafts of her work, which is an exciting little treasure trove of information to have. So there was this stack of very important evaluation theory, uh, work by an evalu- important evaluation theorist just sitting in the library and nobody done anything with it. So I figured something had to be done. Carol Weiss has always excited me. So as I mentioned earlier, I came from public administration and my background was in political science. So was Carol Weiss's. Her bachelor's degree was in uh, political, well, was in government, and so was her master's degree. So she didn't end up in social science research in the same way. She was mostly looking at governmental decision-making before she ended up in evaluation. 
So we had the same interest there. This is why I was immediately drawn to Carol Weiss's work. Well, and that, that governmental background is part of the reason why she went into or why she researched and discussed a lot evaluation influence, right? Because the idea of work and evaluation actually being used, at least in like an instrumental sense, didn't happen very often. That's That led her to her, you know, conceptualization of conceptual use, wasn't it? And enlightenment use? It was. Uh, she's actually the first person who came up with the idea of there's multiple different kinds of use uh, beyond conceptual use even. Uh, the literature, she was the first person who was like, hey, we have all this stuff that we're learning. <laughs> Nobody's using it. But are they using it? In which ways are they using it? And in which ways are they using it, rather? She came up with seven different ways that it's being used. Among them are things like political and tactical and conceptual, instrumental. And that's where a lot of her work sort of exploded onto the world. And that's probably her most cited contribution, actually, is that knowledge can be used in different ways. It's not always instrumental. And whether or not instrumental is an important thing or not is also up for grabs. Yeah, good point. I think there's a lot of focus now. And I think it's like an innate human desire uh, to have the work that you do be immediately important and immediately used. And I think she was, she was definitely instrumental in pointing out that, hey, maybe just focus on doing good work that you hope is used in some way. Let me take a step back. If you read her original book from 1972, the first, first real textbook on evaluation, she goes into this little section about how you have no real control over what happens to the information that you create. So thinking of evaluation in a sort of, I'm doing this so that this happens, isn't a way that you can think about your work. Um, it's very brief that she goes into it. But it, it sort of makes sense, and that really resonated with me when I got my hands on her first edition of the book. Is that that makes sense? Like you can't like once I once I do an evaluation report, there's no way for me to decide or force another whoever gets a hold of that information to do anything with it. So even if you do an, uh, something on with the purpose of if like you can make recommendations, and that's as far as you can go. I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, this is reminding me, and we'll take a little tangent before we come back to talk about the dissertation itself, but it's reminding me of, I think, some a webinar that I listened to Michael Quinn Patton talk about, and he was talking about how, I think it was him and Scriven, it might have been him and somebody else discussing it, and how, you know, use itself is should not be a, you know, standard of evaluation, right? It's Use is not not the goal, it should be the potential use, the potential for use, right? That we should, like like you said, we can't control use, but but I think we can do a lot to do and to promote use, right? And that's where utilization-focused evaluation focuses on. But I think even Carol Weiss had a lot of recommendations, at least from what I re recall from her second edition of that textbook, about what we can do to help promote use, even if we have technically no control over whether that use actually occurs. So there's two things going on when you talk about use. There's making something usable and then there's making and then there's making something used. Um, and I agree that Carol Weiss had a lot of recommendations about making things usable and making them in a format or in a way or in a sense that people who are making decisions or thinking about something can use that information. Uh, as opposed to the actual use part of it. And I think she was really focused on making us understand that there's that nuanced difference there and that we can't assume that being used, we can't focus so much on being on the information being used so much as just making it usable because we don't know when who's going to use it or when or why. Right. Yeah, exactly. 
So this area of evaluation use is obviously one of her big contributions to the field. What other contributions did Carol Weiss give to the field of evaluation? I'd say unsurprisingly that, well, she thought of her work in two different streams. There was an evaluation stream of her work and there was a knowledge utilization stream of her work. So I'll put the knowledge utilization, which is what we were talking about just now, um, off to the side for a second. She realized that they were interrelated, but she also thought that those were two separate things because they are, because how knowledge is used isn't about how knowledge is created. She really pointed out to everyone that evaluation itself is a political act. And the things that get evaluated are the things that we that have some value. Either we want to change them, we want we want to change them in some way. So they're somehow important to us as a society. The things that don't get evaluated are the things that we don't care about or they're functioning fine or we don't even think of. So the, the decision to evaluate something is a political act that has all of the machinations of the political decision-making behind it. And then, so you've got the political decision to do the evaluation. And then after the evaluation, you've got the politics of the evaluation. And then you have the politics after the evaluation. So she brought the idea, or she didn't really bring the idea and she noticed is how she would describe it, that all of this political stuff is happening around us and we can't divorce ourselves from that as evaluators. We have to realize that we're in this political context and that our decisions have political implications. And by politics, I don't mean necessarily, and she didn't mean necessarily the red state, blue state, the conservative liberal thing. She meant the uh, sort of vying for values, the decisions about what we value and how we value it. That's politicking. And that's the way that she thought about it. Yeah, I have a, a paper out with some colleagues. I'm not the first author. So we have a paper out right now on politics and evaluation. I, I don't remember if we actually put this in there, but we, we called it like uh, little politics rather than big P politics, right? Big P politics is that governmental stuff, red versus blue, Democratic versus Republican, all that stuff. Like, So when we were asking evaluators about political situations they'd experienced, we we're like, don't talk about that. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for little P politics, like the little, like like as you said, the, the, um, the tensions that might arise from a variety of opinions about what should be done, how it should be done, and what should be done with it type thing. Like stakeholder negotiation to figure out whose values are going to be in the evaluation is political. And yes, I think sometimes as researchers and social scientists and evaluators, we like to think that we're sort of above the political fray and we're above the big P political fray sometimes, um, but we can, it is impossible to escape the little P political fray. Right. To assume evaluation is value neutral or that we are unbiased in the way we do evaluation or that there are methods of which we could use that are value free or bias free are just <laughs> very wrong assumptions to to approach any type of work. And I, this is where I start thinking about like where evaluation can influence other fields, right? And this idea is one of them. There are other fields that are that very much identify uh, the that it's not value free um, in the work that they do. But when comparing to like, you know, most researchers, they tend to think like, oh, I'm doing an RCT as completely bias free. Therefore, there's nothing I need to worry about. There, there's no way this can be political or that my biases that I hold that I may recognize have any way of shaping the evaluation or the people that are involved in that evaluation, which is a, a, a bit of a ridiculous assumption. <laughs> it is. A couple of colleagues and I at Western Michigan University have a paper that's out for review right now that in the beginning, it discusses how value is central to evaluation. And that is something that I think 
we as evaluators know, and it's something that Carol Weiss knew as an evaluator and practitioner of evaluation, but it's something that, and I think that might be what sort of divides research from evaluation, but I'd like to see research realize that it's a, not a value-free world. Like research can't be value-free either, at least social research, maybe in the natural sciences, but that's a different discussion that we don't need to get into. Uh, right now. No, um, I have thoughts there, but we don't need to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, the other thing. Sorry. I'll talk about the third thing. So Carol Weiss had really three main contributions to evaluation. The first one is the political nature surrounding evaluation coming at you from all sides. Uh, the second is the way that knowledge is used. She has a lot of work on just general knowledge use, but there's also some work on evaluation use. And then the third thing is the nature and method of theory-driven evaluation. If you read her original textbook from 1972, it's very clear that she is laying the groundwork for what theory-driven evaluation is. And she lays out in a very succinct and beautiful way. One of my favorite things actually about Carol Weiss is that she writes beautifully. She is unbelievably easy to read. And for an academic in the mid 20th century, that's rare to find in its own right. But she's also, her writing about evaluation is just about life in general is so, like, it evokes mental pictures. I want to say it's evocative, but not in like the scary, like, but it evokes, like you can see what she's talking about and see what she means. And the analogies that she writes in there in these pithy little ways are just beautiful. One of the more common examples is one of her papers called um, The Fairy Godmother and All of Her Work. It, it, like, it, you just know exactly what she's going to talk about in, in that paper. Uh, another one is, um, I'm going to mingle this one, but uh, it's a quote in one of her early papers where she says, most policy research is doomed to die on the desert air or something like that. <laughs> like, and it's just like, you, like you just see it, it's like a poof of water that just evaporates in the desert. And you go, oh, that's what social policy research is doing right now. That makes sense. That's cool. I realize I haven't I haven't read much beyond her textbook and a couple of her utilization papers, but that sounds awesome. I, I do remember, you know, second year grad school, uh, her textbook assigned readings for my evaluation class were not a slog, that's for sure, uh, at least compared to all the other readings that I had to do for my classes. So yeah, that's awesome. I, I appreciate people who can write well like that. It's a rarity. And I can yeah. also say for a fact, it is the result of a very intentional rewriting cyclical iterative kind of thing to get to the right understanding that she wanted to portray of a, of a concept. I think that might come from her background in government because if you think about government decision makers, they have maybe 10 seconds that they're willing to give you of actual important, like dedicated mental time because they're dealing with lots of things all at once. Mm -hmm. So you need to be able to describe something in a clear, concise, and almost visual way for them so that they know what you're talking about. And then when that topic comes back up, they can pull up that memory and then use that. And I think that's also where she got the idea from um, of conceptual use or enlightenment use um, is that that's, she understood that that's how decisions were made. Well, and, and just writing in a clear accessible format is going to help things be used, right? Like I am, most folks are gonna be much less likely to use something or do something with something if they can't even understand it in the first place, or it's so complicated and technically written that you're struggling to to find the meaning from what you're reading. Like very few people are going to persevere enough to to take anything away from that. Uh, one of the things that 
always, and this is even as like a researcher or an academic, <clears throat> when I read the when I read someone's first sentence in their methods section, and it has like seventeen words that are all methods terms in a row. I'm like, oh no, you can't do that. Like, I know what you mean when you're talking about a mis, like a, oh, oh like the mixed uh, methods design. Mixed methods, <laughs> mixed methods. Yeah, there's a long mixed methods, mixed methods time series, one part. Like, <laughs> like you just described it all in one sentence. I'm like that. I know what you mean, but that doesn't make me want to read anything beyond that. Like mixed, mi yeah. oh, mixed methods, sequential, one part time series, one part like iterative. <laughs> I'm like. Oh, just why social science? Why are you doing that to us? Why research methods? Why are you so unnecessarily dense? And yeah, it's, writing it's really a struggle, right? To balance. Played it and then circumvented it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to, to balance from the, because the, the problem is, and, and it, this reminds me, episode one of this podcast when I had uh, Kathleen Dahl, who we're all working together as the research on evaluation TIG leadership with, uh, with Michael Harner when I had her on, she's like, okay, I'm going to like say the title, like the, the, the design of my study. And it is like a 10 word. It's a, it's like a mixed method study in, in within a mixed method study. So like, it's just like an embedded, like all this stuff. It's just like, oh my gosh. Uh, but the problem is like, that is the clearest technical definition of how to describe what her study is, you know, like that is technically the correct one. And like to balance that, the nuance of having all of that versus communicating it in, in a, you know, clear and concise way that is accessible for folks, I think is a really hard struggle. It's reminding me of an article that uh, I keep reading. It always just, it comes back and I keep, I read it over and over again called nuance. Uh, <laughs> And how sometimes we just need to like not be so nuanced, and especially in our academic writing. I was having a conversation with a couple of colleagues about they're looking at evidence-based registers and how those end up in legislation. And we were talking about some academic nuanced part of it. And then one of us said, it was not me, I was more of the political machinations expert in the call. Um, one of us said, does this really matter? Do political decision makers even care? Like, do legislators care? Do Does anyone care what the difference between these two are? And I was like, no, they don't. They, like, <laughs> they're much more pragmatic. So understanding your audience and knowing what they're willing to get out of it, too, I think also can be drawn back to Carol Weiss's work and understanding what uses are possible of something and making sure that you address all of those in your work, as opposed to just being like, as, as opposed to deciding as the researcher or the evaluator that this work should be used to make a summary decision. So therefore it's a, summer, a sum, uh, summative evaluation, ta-da. <laughs> like you can't do that. And Carol Weiss pointed that out. So I think this is a good time to pivot and talk about all the cool findings that came for your dissertation. I, I think some of it we've kind of talked about a little bit, but there was a lot of cool stuff that came out about, you know, where her work can be found, where her work's being cited. And that's all I'm recalling right now. Things keep copping into my head as I start recalling your defense that was, gosh, was that in like, when was that? October, November? October. It was late October. It was either yeah. right before or right after AEA. I don't remember which. So it was a it was a muddled time in my mind too. <laughs> so years ago, right? In pandemic time, years ago. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a while ago and I actually had to take a look and see what my findings were specifically. Um, obviously the, the ones that come to mind first are that Carol Weiss's work, um, I guess I'll drive it home again. There's three real things that she focused on and three real ways that she changed the academic and the, the 
world of talking about evaluation. I think I'll take a step back here and say that my dissertation didn't focus on Carol Weiss as a person or herself or her general influence. It focused on the influence of her writing. Um, and that's a very important distinction to make because uh, that's the, that's the I suppose, easiest thing to get a hold of because she's no longer with us. And it would be impossible, I want to say, to track down a majority even of the people that she ever interacted with, which would tell us our influence of her as a person. Can I, I, I seem to recall that her daughter helped inform your study or, or do something, she was involved somehow. Yes. Carol Weiss's daughter, Janet Weiss, um, was involved in the early stages of my dissertation through, my dissertation took a lot longer than planned. Um, life happened in the middle there, as happens with dissertations. Um, and she had retired yep. um, at that point and was, so she was involved in the planning, designing, all of that, but not in the interpretation of the analysis of it. So I had got to speak with Janet a number of times. Uh, she's the former provost at the University of Michigan. Um, so oh. I had a few conversations with her about what her mother thought of her work, like what Carol thought of what Carol did. Um, and that was very informative. And that was an exciting option to have. And yeah, that's awesome. I feel very lucky for that. I think of Carol as this grand luminary of evaluation. While I was doing my research, trying to all the little bits of information that she sort of left in the written world, I came across the citation of her work in the Oxford English Dictionary as one of the first uses of the phrase evaluation research. So that like she's central to evaluation without her. I don't know if evaluation would progress in the same way that it has or would progress at all in outside of the academic world. And also more importantly, she also kept evaluation from being a, I want to say a man's sport. <laughs> I don't know the way to say it. She feminized evaluation. She made her presence as an important theorist in the early stages of evaluation, made sure that women would ha have a place in evaluation going forward, I think. It's it's rare to have a field where one of the founding theorists who was important and influential for her in, for the entire first 50, 60 years of the field was a woman. And she's like one of the top two or three. Like that's an odd thing. Well, I, I wonder, um, I wonder though, if at the time that's what she, like if she was really being recognized for that. Because I, I think back to, um, you know, reading all of the oral history project uh, papers from all the other people who we consider kind of big names that helped shape the beginning of the field and, and current field of evaluation. Gosh, I'm, I'm totally forgetting the name of the group, but the group's name was a date. Um, and that was just the date that they met the first time. And uh, although for some reason, nobody can remember who exactly was all there, uh, nobody recalls anybody but white men being there. And then those white men continue to meet basically by themselves. I think Jean King may have been brought in at some point or was there at some point, but it's just, it's a lot of white men, even though we look back and we realize there were a lot of incredible women and people who are not white, um, you know, uh, black scholars, especially who shaped the field a lot too. Although I'm not sure, I, you know, you could, we could think back to like Vidya Shanker's dissertation on race and evaluation and how you know, the, the white citations, the white folks in evaluation have perpetuated a mostly white field through exclusionary practices and exclusionary citation practices, especially. I think one important thing to remember is that Carol Weiss was a practitioner long before she was an academic. She didn't get her PhD in, in, until 1978, 79, 79, 1979. 
So the first 12, 14 years of her career, she was, she wasn't an academic. She was at um, Columbia's Bureau of Applied Social Research. And she was doing all this evaluation work that was getting cited in the government, but she wasn't part of the academic world of evaluation. And I think that also helped. That's an important thing to know is that she was an outsider anyway, because she didn't have her doctorate. And there's, in the big blue book of evaluation, Foundations of Evaluation by Shadish Cook and Levitin, they argue, or they suggest that 1979 was this pivotal point in Carol Weiss's career because she started talking about evaluation and research in the same way as opposed to different ways, or they have some, I don't know. I don't think it's true. I think that in 1979, she got her PhD and she could say things in a way that would be respected in a different way than before that. Interesting. Um, Because I couldn't find any real evidence that the way she talked about things changed. Um, Her understanding of things did evolve, but it wasn't like all of a sudden she's like, oh, this happened. (laughs) And then she changed to talk about, yeah. Some other findings from your dissertation, uh, where she published and where her citations went, like what, where, where has she influenced within and beyond evaluation? Uh, so her work, understandably, was published largely in political science and public administration and education and uh, evaluation journals. And you would expect to find citations there. Uh, but she's found in every single citation category in Scopus. Citation categories are a wonky thing anyway. They, there's, they're not a one-to-one thing. The American Evaluation Association's journal is listed in four categories, um, one of which is business and management, oh. um, and others is psychology. So there's fields that cluster, uh, journals that cluster in those areas. But she's found, her citations are found in everything from the obvious places. And then she's, there's a lot of citations to her in medicine and nursing because of the, the knowledge utilization stuff and how that, how knowledge utilization has morphed into and been twisted into evidence-based work. Um, so there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. But she's also in places like veterinary medicine and physics, like just general physics um, and electrical engineering. She's in some very strange places. And a lot of that is due to her work on how knowledge is used. But it was very interesting to find that, that this little field of evaluation that we still sort of feel like is, it's not a mature field, I would say. It's working on it. It's not to the point where um, like political science or economics or sociology is. It's not that entrenched. Like we don't have university departments at every university on the planet. Um, we're like a small little section in other groups. Uh, that that this little tiny field that's on its way to becoming a mature thing has been so influential in its first fifty or sixty years in all these places. Like it's very rare to find a citation yeah. from physics in an evaluation journal. Like that. Like right. <laughs> but our work has gone into physics where physics hasn't come into ours. So I think it speaks to how influential evaluation as a field is. Um, and how useful it is to everyone. Right. Like, um, you know, we think to Scriven and how he thinks of evaluation. And, oh, I think I would argue for the same, that evaluation is a transdiscipline. You know, he he hopes that one day that will become the alpha discipline that, you know, informs all other disciplines. But uh, it'd, be, it'd be curious to see how basically the way you did your research through looking at citation tracing um, across different fields, the, how that looks like on a larger like evaluation stance. I, I, I can imagine that would be incredibly difficult. I'm not sure it's possible, but it'd be cool to be able to kind of trace like where is evaluation influencing other fields um, currently and where is it growing and where are fields that um, uh, could benefit from greater influence from the evaluation literature and so on. I think 
citations are an, are, are an easy access point, actually, to find that information out, sort of. <laughs> One thing that I discovered while I was doing my research is that citations are a measure of influence, but we don't know an influence of what. <laughs> right. uh, so one of the questions I got from some of my early readers of my dissertation was, are you going to look and see whether it's a positive or a negative attribution? Like, are, she, are they arguing with Ice with Weiss or are they agreeing with Weiss? And right. as I read more about citation theory, it doesn't really matter. Because if you're looking at influence, if you're, it doesn't matter if you're agreeing or disagreeing with them, it's still a piece of influence. And we don't really know what citations mean anyway. Uh, they could have a whole bunch of different meanings. Like a citation could mean that you're just evoking their name because they're an important person in the field and you want to place yourself in the right space in the field. Or they could be an acknowledgement of the other person's work officially. And the citations also, citation to information that people create has changes over time. One thing that I noticed very recently is there's a handful of papers that don't cite Weiss that should be citing Weiss. Right. And that's not a bad thing. That just means that her information has now become so prevalent that we understand it. It'd be like, no one in, in genetics cites Mendeleev anymore. Like, it's just accepted. Like, the whole world knows that <laughs> genetic research started with the bean guy. Like, that's it. That's all we need to know. No one cites back to him in genetics anymore. Right. And I think it's kind of exciting that some of Weiss's work is getting to that point, that it's just so common knowledge in fields that there are different ways that we use information. It's a little concerning that somebody didn't cite her, but at the same time, the knowledge is out there. So I don't know how, that's one of the problems with citations. You don't know exactly how far it goes. And it sort of peters off at some point that people stop citing them because they just think it's common knowledge. Yeah. Your point about how we don't know quite what citations mean and, you know, a good or a bad reference to a, bad, a, a particular situation may not be meaningful. I don't know. I'm, I'm having a hard time with that one. Um, I listened to a podcast that uh, has talked about this a couple times. Everything hurts. Um, H-E-R-T-Z. They're, uh, they do like biopsychology research or something. I don't do that field, but really interesting. And um, it was from that that I learned about a platform called Site S-C-I-T-E. And the whole goal of that is to look at whether a citation is, you know, positively or negatively referencing another article. That being said, I've, I've looked into it and I can imagine you could talk about this too, like how to pull citations, like all the different, you said you use Scopus, right? Like all of them have different ways that they pull it. And so like, if I were to go track my citations, it's going to differ depending on the, or like the platform I'm using. But even then, like they're not finding a lot of the evaluation stuff because it seems to be more of the quote unquote hard science literature from what I'm gathering. But it is interesting, I think, like I would at least want to know if something that I've done has been cited positively, negatively, or neutrally. Most, I think, tend to be more neutral than anything. But like, if somebody's got something crappy to say about my paper, I'd like to know about it. <laughs> and I think it is informative in and of itself. I, I think it's informative and it's useful to be able to track the discussion. So if there's a discussion that comes off of that, that's interesting. But as far as measuring influence, I don't think it's important uh, because... Hmm it's still influential either way if someone's citing it is just what I was trying to get to. One other thing about the way that, actually I'll say two things. One, because even that horrible paper that the Lancet has pulled about uh, the link that doesn't exist between autism and something else that I won't name, because um, it's not there. Uh, <laughs> even that paper has been wildly influential and gets cited all the time. Lately in a lot of science communication journals is a, wow, this was a huge screw up. 
Like, how did this happen? But that's been widely cited in a whole bunch of places. So it's still influential broadly. I wouldn't say that that anyone citing it positively, but... But like when we use citation metrics sometimes for like tenure review and uh, other faculty review stuff, like, yeah, my H index is, I don't know, 50 or whatever. Like, I, I don't know these citation metrics things enough to talk about this, uh, specifically. But, you know, like that that guy, like he, it took how many years before his medical license was revoked or something like, wasn't it? It wasn't his, yeah. And yeah. like how many years it took because you just look at the citation metrics and you just think, wow, this is great work. It's getting cited, even though a lot of the citations were like debunking it like crazy, mm-hmm. right? But it, but if we're just looking at that number as, yeah, it's influential, it's like, yeah, but influential for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Shouldn't be influential. <laughs> That's why I don't like citation metrics as a way to sort of determine quantitatively influence. I think there are yep. good way to qualitatively determine influence. It's a good way to determine breadth. It's a good way to determine where it's being influential. But as far as using a quantitative measure of citation metrics, I don't feel it's necessarily good for anyone because for that that very reason, a number of citations to someone who says you're an idiot and that all your research is wrong and here's why doesn't mean you're a good researcher. It means that you game to the system. And I think if you focus on the quantitative yep. side of metrics, then it's very easy to game the system because we have all these um, mills of people who just have self citations up the, to game the system. And there's so many problems with citations as a metric that I think they're good to learn where things are going, but I don't think it's good to use it as a like an impartial quantitative measure of this is how good of a researcher this person is. Right. Or how successful this paper actually is, like how good of a paper this is. It's not a quality metric. Right. It doesn't measure how it does. There are some people, some people in citation theory who believe that it measures how good a paper is, but. I don't believe that. (laughs) I don't believe that either. Um, One thing I will say about using citation, uh, using metrics is uh, there's Scopus has gotten really good in the last two years. Fortunately, when I started my dissertation, the only way to get the information that I wanted was through Google Scholar. And it's a very messy, dirty system. Scopus has improved so much in the two years that it took from the start of my dissertation to the end of my dissertation that I could use them and they're close enough. (laughs) So that's exciting. That is exciting. That's good to know because I tend to just default, just rely on Google Scholar. It's just easy, but I've come to realize how messy it is. And so when I get notifications of citations from Google Scholar, from ResearchGate, and from the journal publishers themselves, I think, like none of them seem to match. <laughs> and it's always just a little frustrating. <laughs> Although I don't, I don't, I try not to worry about it too much. <laughs> I don't worry about it too much. I, um, Scopus yeah. is good enough. Um, there's been a lot of work to show that Scopus is a, is a reliable subset of Google Scholar right now. So it cool. does still undersite evaluation journals, but I don't think you're going to change anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I seem to crawl. I, it came up, you know, like I said, things keep coming back up to the forefront as we talk more about this. I seem to recall there was a paper that she wrote like, or there's like seven different versions, like the first, the paper, oh my gosh, the paper exists in like seven different places. Yeah. So there... <laughs> There is one paper that she wrote that is published in seven or eight different places under two different titles. And it's one of the titles is where politics and evaluation research meet. And the other title is evaluation research in the political context. So somehow, and I don't even know how this happened, she published it in a journal and then it was published under a different title in a book the next year. I couldn't figure out how that happened, but then they both went on their own little separate streams of publication. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. So when... 
so this is another problem with metrics is one, you would have never known that um, if you didn't actually dig into the dig into her writing and figure out what, that it was the same article. She does mention in each right. publication, it, it is mentioned in each publication that this is a republication of this book, of this article under this title. Oh, that's good. So there's nothing like duplicitous about it. It's just a weird publishing thing that happened. And the connection between politics and evaluation is central to Weiss and one of her major contributions. But that paper doesn't come up as one of her highly cited articles because it's two different articles. When you combine it, it's her second, their second or third highest cited thing. But separately, mm. they both fall out of the top 10. Interesting. So you analyze them both ways. Yes, I did. Just to see what would happen. Nothing exciting happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because it was so small. You, the, the other thing is that citation metrics, you, the use of citation metrics on a small scale for like an individual scholar aren't particularly helpful because um, comparing, because there's nothing to compare it to really. And sure. comparing across fields is something that citation metrics can't do yet. It's a commonly accepted thing in the field of citation metrics that you can't compare across fields. But a lot of people not in citation theory uh, or in citation in library sciences will just compare different fields and say, because they're all the same, but they're not. Like every every field has its own community with its own rules about publishing and citing. So it's, it's an interesting sort of academic discussion to have. Like there's... So we can't look at the magnitude of the effect of like her work, but we can look at like how her work has changed over time and the breadth of her work, right? So that's what you focused on? Right. I, I focused on the breadth of her work because to say someone's widely influential, that's great. But how do you measure that? And I, I went into this with the whole citations. They're easy. They're online. They're um, cross-checked, I presumed. In Scopus, they are. In Google Scholar, they're not. Mm. And they're consistent. Like if you cite someone, you cite the right thing. That's also not true. There are a lot of citations in the earlier, like in the 60s and 70s that are close enough. Like they have the right author, the right author's last name, about a quarter of the title, and then <laughs> they'll have maybe what it was published in. So it, it was sort of a Wild West era before like 2010, um, citations was. So now we think of them as this very regimented thing, but they haven't been for like, it's only been 10 years that they've been really structured in some useful way. It's actually kind of reminded me, I got this email this morning that um, one of my papers uh, cited in a publication. So I go investigate. I'm like, oh, I wonder what they're saying about it. What they said about it made no sense to my paper. I was like, how are you citing my paper? Like, you shouldn't be citing my paper. I, I appreciate it. But like this, I don't see how this is relevant in any regard to what you are saying here. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I would do if I had the energy, I think it's an energy issue, is to go through <laughs> all of the... 10,000 citations to Weiss that I could find and figure out if they're accurate and what they're actually like if they're if it's actually Weiss that they're citing or if they're just citing the idea of Weiss which is another problem with citations mm -hmm. or if they're actually citing something that's in that paper or in a different paper um, I'd have to do it soon because I, I, I worry that I read everything that Weiss wrote um, I worry that some of those are going to fall out <laughs> at some point but I also don't have the energy to do that right now. That's a huge undertaking. What do you mean? You think somebody's going to steal that idea and run forward with it? I mean, if they do, I'll help them. <laughs> <laughs> but well, it's it's ten thousand papers and books that you have yeah. to read. Like yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> um, and you can't rely on a computer system to do it because it computer reading doesn't really work the same way that human processing works yet. So yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound like something you should pursue. I don't think. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't sound. <laughs> Unless useful. you had like a large research team. <laughs> 
what would be much more, yes, if I had seven people working under me and coordinating that, that I could do. Um, or if I, what, what would be more important to the field of evaluation would be to continue it and look at Scriven's work and look at Stucklebeam's work and look at um, others' work and see how that yeah, is influential. I agree. So is there anything else that you can recall that were cool findings that came up from your work on the influence of Carol Weiss? Um, there was some stuff on interdisciplinarity that uh, was interesting. I'm not sure if I've fully pulled it out yet, um, but there's a lot of difficulty understanding what good interdisciplinary research looks like because it crosses those boundaries. So you can't use citation metrics for it. You have to use, so it's a challenge for interdisciplinary scholars or people who intentionally cross barriers to be able to show the worth or the value of their work because you can't use citation metrics because they're a bad example, a bad indicator. Right. I pulled out some theoretical stuff um, that matched with what appears in Weiss's work, but I haven't tested it on anyone else yet that was an interdisciplinary scholar. So there's something in there and I'm working on that. That's one of the things I'm working on is trying to figure out if that holds true for other people, because just because it holds true for Weiss doesn't mean it's going to hold true for someone else. If I can get two or three people it holds true for, then I think I might have something. And at that point I would share it. But right now it's just sort of idiosyncratic. So there's something about understanding how interdisciplinary scholars do their work and where it shows up that we can use as a metric. But I don't know what that is yet. I, I think I'm down the right path, but we'll find out in a couple of years. Interesting. Well, we'll have to talk about that when that happens. <laughs> so I think we can wrap up um, unless there's anything else about your dissertation or about why that you think is important we mention. Um, I think I got the big things. <laughs> cool. Okay. So dissertation is done. We're, you know, we're in, insert applause here, right? Congratulations. So what's next for you? I'm looking for the right position for my interests and where I want to be and where I want to go. Um, I spent the last four years teaching evaluation at, for the University of Melbourne, and that was a great experience. Um, it was an online program, and I got to work with a global group of people coming at evaluation from different points, and that was very fulfilling. So I'm probably looking at a teaching type role. I don't know if I want to be in formal education or an informal education. Um, in my conversations, um, not directly with Nikki Bowman, but that I've been in meetings with her, I've realized there's a very important place for informal evaluated education. And I think I might want to end up there. I don't know yet. So I'm looking for the right position. I've got some consulting work that I'm doing. And I'm also working on getting my dissertation into some papers to publish and also working on the idea of evidence and what that means in evaluation and for decision making. That's a big thing to tackle. Yes. But it's super exciting to me. <laughs> I've got a paper that's going to be presented at a conference in a couple in about a month and then out to the races with it so it'll be at some point coming out nice congrats i uh i will keep my eyes open for any jobs that might look appealing to you and your your desire for informal education and evaluation thank you i'm not going to turn down a formal one but i don't know if that's where ed yeah. education evalu evaluator education is going in the next few years yeah i i yeah that's a good topic and question for a, a different podcast. <laughs> right. So one thing I like to do to end the show is um, something that I um, love from the Code Switch podcast from NPR, and they ask what song is giving you life right now. But I'm always curious, a little bit more selfishly curious about what is like what in evaluation is giving you life right now? I'm really excited about the potential opportunity um, that I think is part of this sort of broader social reckoning 
of inequities in our society, that we can re-examine what evidence means and how we get to the idea of evidence. I conceptualize evidence as, and this is probably another podcast talk too, I conceptualize evidence as information from research, information from evaluation, and information from other things that we don't typically accept, like indigenous ways of knowing, or is probably the biggest one. And that's been completely removed from the whole conversation on evidence. Literally, my take, my my sort of hot take on evidence is that if these societies have existed for hundreds and thousands of years, and we don't think that they can make their own information, we're screwing something up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because our ways of knowing aren't anywhere near that old. Like advanced statistical stuff that we rely on to make decisions is maybe 50, 60 years old. <laughs> Right. Well, and the and the purposes by which, like, for instance, statistics was born was not for this, you know, bias-free, value-neutral purpose. Like, statistics was born for a eugenicist, is that the word, eugenicist, eugenic, whatever, eugenic uh, purpose, right? Like, that was the reason it was developed. So thinking of it as being the one way of knowing is, or one of the only ways of knowing is really problematic. Um, I think back to, and this sort of came up in um, my study of Weiss, is the, the, so political economy was the same thing back in, like a century ago. And when economics realized they could do math stuff with their theory and political science couldn't, they sort of divorced and went down different paths. Because if you used, if you were able to use math 110, 15, 20 years ago, then you were more science-like um, and therefore you were more believable. <laughs> It's just yeah. like this weird little thing that happened. And that's why political science and economics are different fields now. And political economy is just like a new field that came in. Yeah. Or a new conceptualization of an old field. Yeah. Like if you can put math to it, it's therefore inherently like value free. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not how the world works. <laughs> so I'm excited that we're, I think we're at a point in like the global society where we can finally start to have that conversation, maybe. Or at least it's my intention to sort of make that a conversation that needs to be had. So that's what excited me about evaluation. Yeah, I I definitely feel the field is moving that way. I hope society is also moving that way largely. I'm not sure we're at that like tipping point yet, but it is exciting to see as that as that as that shift happens. So that's that's the thing that's most exciting about evaluation. We're finally having that. We're at a space to have that conversation in a productive way, as opposed to a yelling at each other back and forth kind of way. Right. Right. Well, thank you. Uh, so if anybody would like to get in contact with you, how might they best reach you? Um, probably best to email me at my Western email address, which is gregory.d.greenman at wmish.edu. Perfect. We'll have that all in the show notes. Thank you so much, Gregory. It was a lovely time chatting with you about Carol Weiss and your dissertation. Thank you. I had a great pleasure. It was fun talking with you, Dana. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evaluland.fireside.fm where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evaluland.